You know, this is a letter here from the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. Recognizing the Troopers as the winningest team in professional football history. But when you see this stuff, it like comes to life. This is trapped in historical limbo. All this stuff was just trapped. Nobody knew about it. I'm not sure that we were ever going to get the story out until this moment right now. My friend of mine, uh, she says, hey, they are got a football team going for girls. They're going to, you know, you want to go try out with me? And I went, mm-hmm, okay. Girls didn't participate in sports. Girls just wore dresses and looked cute and looked for husbands. People thought it was powder puff football until they came to a game. Five one, five two, hundred and ten pounds. Heart of a lion. You're talking about heart. Coach gave me a helmet and shoulder pads and said, hit her. Okay. By Sunday, I was either on crutches or I could barely walk. We did a lot of hitting. Nothing like they do now. <laughs> Isn't it funny? I said, girl, you're going to eat this nail polish before this day is over. We were unstoppable. It was picture perfect. It was unbelievable. We had more to prove. Never be another football team like the Toyota Troopers. Other teams tried. No one else could do it. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right now, how is it going, everybody? My name is Tim Hanlon. You hopefully know that by now. And this little podcast, hopefully you know as well, is called Good Seats Still Available. It's our curious little podcast that we do for you each and every week. And it's devoted to, of course, say it with me, what used to be in professional sports. That's our little want here on the show. And uh, we thank you uh, for either coming back and listening again anew. Uh, this is our 238th, oh my God, episode already. Hard, hard to believe. Uh, and if you're new to the proceedings, well, we welcome you with uh, open arms uh, as we get into a, a fascinating topic and frankly, a conversation I've been uh, waiting to have for months now, ever since I got a preview version of this book. Let's uh, let's sort of set it up first before we introduce the topic and our guests. The clip that you just heard hopefully sets the tone for you. It's uh, from a movie uh, that debuted just a couple of weeks ago uh, in beautiful Toledo, Ohio at the Valentine Theater downtown uh, on the 25th of September, I think it was. And it's a film called We Are the Troopers from an entity called uh, Ansiria Films. And it is the story of The National Women's Football League. Yes, you heard that correctly, friends. The National Women's Football League, and in particular, the Toledo Troopers, who were, by all accounts, the uh, most dominant franchise in this 1970s league devoted to professional tackle football for women. Now, we uh, have delved into this topic previously, and if... uh, you remember back in our episode number 154 with our pal Olivia Kwan, we got into the NWFL by way of the team uh, of her mother's uh, play. Her mom played on this team called the Houston Hurricanes. Hurricanes spelled H-E-R-R. Get it? Hurricanes. Uh, and that documentary that Olivia was putting together at the time, uh, I think is still in production. 
and uh, hopefully we'll be out soon. But it's called Brick House, and uh, we're eagerly awaiting that. But uh, this week, uh, we are going to take up our investigation of the NWFL, the National Women's Football League, to a whole nother level because a brand new book literally just came out last week uh, is out devoted to uh, this amazing story writ large. It's called Hail Mary, the Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League, right up our alley for sure. And it's by our guests this week who are we are pleased and privileged to have. Brittany Della Creta and Lindsay Darcangelo. And you may know them both from uh, their uh, various writings uh, and stylings in a whole realm of sports journalism. Uh, ESPN uh, and lots of uh, feature pieces and, and uh, uh, women's sports and other stuff. Uh, and uh, both of them are, are, are excellent sports writers and journalists uh, in their own right. But they have collaborated on this book called Hail Mary. And it is, um, I, I, I must tell you, even if you have a, a glancing interest or, or perhaps you think no interest at all in how uh, women in the 1970s uh, created and were part of uh, ultimately an ill-fated, but uh, for a time, uh, amazing uh, entity known as the uh, National Women's Football League. And this, friends, was was pure play, honest to gosh, uh, tackle football. This is no powder puff stuff. This is no flag football stuff. This is real-time stuff. And um, it's a fascinating story. It, it, we, it begins, as perhaps one might imagine, uh, a promoter. Uh, a, a using literally and figuratively uh, women uh, to do, uh, I guess, uh, uh, you know, exhibitions of uh, of football at halftime of of male football games, and and as a, sort of as a circus sideshow, so to speak, right? It's an an attraction, an oddity. Uh, but as the years rolled on, and we'll get into the story with with uh, Brittany and Lindsay in a few minutes, uh, you'll see and hear very quickly that. There was something to this football thing that these women had going for them and a real passion and a love for the game that uh, eventually in 1974, in earnest, uh, began the story of uh, actual league play in this thing called the NWFL. Now, I mentioned the Toledo uh, Troopers. They um, they won a whole bunch of championships. They weren't the only champion, but the uh, by and large were kind of the ones hoovering it all up in terms of the accolades and the play. But um, depending on the, on the markets, you may remember or you may have a glancing uh, 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 interest or curiosity in uh, a, a team in Tulsa called the Babes, believe it or not, the Philadelphia Queen Bees, uh, the Los Angeles Dandelions, the Houston Hurricanes, which we mentioned, the Detroit Demons. Dallas actually had two franchises. Uh, the metro area did, the Dallas Blue Bonnets. And then there was an adjunct uh, uh, of that team called the Dallas-Fort Worth Shamrocks. Um, whole bunches of teams. I think there were almost like 25 or so in all. Uh, and uh, interestingly, the history of this league, uh, relatively ragtag or shall we say under-investigated. And, and by all means, this book, Hail Mary, is, is really a, a foundational now uh, contribution to the history of this league. Uh, but it, it just shows you, as you look in sort of the uh, the back chapters of this book, uh, uh, Brittany and Lindsay have, have listed all the teams that, from their investigation, they believe played in this league. But 
when it started is is kind of not too much in debate. It was really 1974. Uh, there were a couple of years prior when the exhibition thing was happening where there was a bit of more league-like play. But 74 is generally assumed to be the, the legitimate start of this uh, 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 National Women's Football League. But the end date uh, is a little in doubt. Um, some of these teams uh, went on to continue to play even after the NWFL essentially kind of dissipated. Some of them went right into the 80s and continued to play, um, you know, I would say, controlled exhibitions or more short, uh, short season things with a smaller number of teams. But r- regardless of the sort of specifics and, and the uh, uh, the official details, the story, uh, uh, both of the start, uh, the running of, and frankly, the uh, the diaspora sense of this thing called the National Women's Football League is truly, really interesting. And the book is, uh, it's just chock full of stuff. It's so well written. Um, and again, you don't have to be a fan of, of uh, women's sports or women's football or football generally to sort of understand some of the uh, the elements of of why not only it's important, but just the sheer fun and the story of it. it and frankly, it's quite incredible. Uh, I, I, and perhaps it's incredible because it just hasn't been written about or or uh, presented uh, in, in a whole large sense of uh, of uh, of media and that, and that stuff. So, you know, the, the Troopers uh, documentary, certainly. Uh, Olivia's uh, uh, documentary upcoming about the Houston hurricane, certainly. Uh, but this book is uh, uh, yet another uh, substantial log in this uh, growing uh, conflagration of excitement and interest that is the National Women's Football League. Our topic this week with our guests, Brittany Delacreta and Lindsay D'Arcangelo. Uh, it, it's a treat to have had this conversation Uh, And I look forward to presenting it to you in mere moments. Uh, But first, of course, uh, let's get a a great sponsor of ours out of the way. Not out of the way. We want to embrace them fully, of course. And let's uh, let's uh, let's uh, turn the dial to Judd Lasher uh, down in uh, the Springfield, Missouri area. And of course, you know, Judd is the chief cook and bottle washer and proprietor of one of our favorite sites, 417helmets.com, 417 helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And uh, it, what is uh, 417 helmets? Well, like the name implies, it's mini helmets. These uh, well-crafted, uh, the same materials that go into the actual sized uh, playing football helmets with the face masks and the, uh, uh, you know, and all the uh, the safety measures and all that kind of stuff. But in miniature form, they make a wonderful gift for any football fan uh, in your life. And we're talking uh, many football helmets in the realms of the NCAA, uh, smaller schools like the NAIA, uh, defunct leagues like we love uh, to sort of obsess about, uh, the various teams and logos from the USFL and the World Football League and the uh, XFL and the World League of American Football, even some current and former CFL helmets, even high school helmets. And you know, uh, of course, if you've listened to the show and uh, and heard any of our sponsorship doings with uh, with Judd previously, he is also expert in creating that custom helmet that you might want. And perhaps, uh, maybe after this week's episode, we can twist Judd's uh, arm and leg and maybe a few other um, parts of his body to perhaps create one or more mini football helmets devoted to the National Women's Football League. There are some great logos there, some interesting ones, some head scratchers for sure. There are about 15 or 20 teams there that uh, perhaps could get the NWFL treatment. 
Um, I guess you'd have to order in a custom fashion at this point, but let's see what we can uh, drive Judd's way. Uh, but check him out. Lots of great stuff. All kinds of other, there's some mini baseball helmets there too. He's got some apparel for sale. Um, but those helmets, these mini helmets, uh, custom uh, or otherwise, are, are yours to uh, peruse, uh, enjoy looking at, and hopefully, knock on wood, buy a couple or a couple of hundred for your friends, your family. Hey, the holidays are coming up. Why not uh, beat the um, logistics uh, woes out there and get your orders in early uh, to ensure for uh, speedy delivery before uh, the holidays arrive? It's 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. And of course, we've got a promo code for you. It's good seats. Promo code is good seats at 417helmets.com to receive 10% off all of your purchases. That's however many times you'd like to go, how many orders you'd like to do, how many uh, uh, sizable orders you want to put in there. Go for it at 417helmets.com. And that promo code again, good seats for 10% off. Thank you, Judd and 417 Helmets for your sponsorship of this week's episode. And now let us waste no more time. Let's get to our chat, our conversation. And it's a very fun one. You're going to enjoy it. So buckle up and uh, stand by because here it is. Here's our conversation with Brittany and Lindsay. Let's talk Hail Mary in the National Women's Football League. Please enjoy. I've been excited about getting this uh, conversation underway. I've had this book uh, in its uh, pre-published form for a couple of months now. And um, you may be somewhat familiar with our little genre here, but for the last four and a half, almost five years now, we've been doing um, this little podcast interview uh, series around teams and leagues and and various situations in pro sports that have uh, somehow disappeared into the ether uh, for, for a whole host of reasons, some of them comical, some of them tragic, some of them somewhat in between. Um, A lot of themes have sort of evolved over those, uh, over those explorations, it doesn't really matter what sport um, uh, or situation. Uh, but I, I must tell you that one of the more fascinating conversations that we had was uh, in the in the spring of last year. Uh, you may be familiar with uh, Olivia Kwan, who has this uh, documentary in process now about the uh, National Women's Football League, Houston Hurricanes, H-E-R-R. Um, and it's interesting because I I fancy myself as someone who just, you know, uh, goes, is a, is a geek, if you will, for, you know, uh, defunct leagues and things that have just come and gone. And, and the more obscure, the better. And I must tell you, uh, and maybe because it's, I'm a, I'm a guy, but uh, the National Women's Football League to me was uh, not only a revelation, but uh, uh, fascinating at that. Uh, because I think for, I think for many, uh, I, if you will, mainstream sports fans, even that uh, that league sort of fell under the radar for a lot of folks. And I guess I'll just sort of wind up and just ask generally to start. Um, how did the two of you sort of, what's your entree to this league and to this story? Yeah, so we love Olivia. Um, this is Brittany. I'm actually in Brick House, which is the documentary um, that she's making. And I flew down to Houston to film and I got to attend the Hurricanes reunion that is shown in the film and as you, people will read in the book as well. So I, I love that connection and I love that you have talked to Olivia. But also, I think that this podcast and the framing is actually perfect for how we ended up finding out about this league. Um 
I don't know much about football. It's it's not my primary sport. Um, but I was writing a column on women's football and telling Lindsay how I couldn't find anything about the history of women's football. And I was finding it really frustrating because I'm a history nerd. And I really like to incorporate that into my work. And, you know, she joked that I should write a book. And I was like, well, if that ever happens, you'll write it with me. Um, And here we are. But this is not the original book we set out to write. We actually had a proposal that did not sell. That was a much more generalized history of women's football. And in the process of researching that proposal, I came across the Toledo Troopers, who are one of the teams in the NWFL, and they are also the winningest pro football team of all time, men's or women's. And I had a column at Long Reads at the time, and I was trying to tell stories from of sports from the perspective of the losers or the people that didn't succeed, whether it was a failed league or a losing team. And so I set out to try to recreate what happened when the winningest Uh, team in football history lost its first game. And it was in researching that, which uh, actually opens our book um, against the Oklahoma City Dolls, that I realized, wait a second, this team must have been playing other teams. Well, who else was playing? Who else was in this league? And why can't I find anything about it? And I went back to Lindsay and I was like, wait a second, Lindsay, what if that other thing isn't the story? What if the story is actually this league? Yeah, and a couple of things. Number one, they say that, that, and I don't know who came up with this this quote, but it's the if you can't find the book you're looking for, you're kind of sort of doomed to write it, I guess. And perhaps a little bit of that came into play. But but maybe for our audience, you can, uh, Brittany, and then uh, and finally Lindsay, uh, you, the you you you're sports writers by trade, the two of you. We are. Yeah, we are both sports writers and our work is a little bit different, which actually blended really well uh, for this project. But I describe my work as sitting at the intersection of sports and gender. And I do a lot more cultural analysis and critical analysis um, than I do say like gamers or um, play, you know, in play analysis and stuff like that. I actually come from a uh, fiction background, but also nonfiction. I sort of mix the two for a little bit there. Um, and then starting in 2015, I, I focused on sports writing, started out writing about um, out uh, lesbian athletes in, in a multiple range of sports, and then um, got hired at the Athletic Buffalo, was writing primarily about Buffalo sports, and uh, then started doing work for the Athletic WNBA, um, having written about the WNB, WNBA before primarily, and then um, switched to recently this spring to covering women's basketball and the WNBA exclusively for the athletic and also just women's sports. So we do have different uh, backgrounds, but they they just fit so well together um, for this project. So as you discovered that the story perhaps then was a little bit more um, focused perhaps on this hard to find information about league. How do you, what's the process the two of you sort of work out with each other to sort of figure out what that story is and, and, and perhaps more interestingly, how do you tell it and, and find maybe first person 
narratives to 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 get there. Yeah, well, well, Brittany had the lead on this, having discovered uh, the league itself, and then we we sort of found out about these different teams doing just some initial research, different teams that were involved in the league, and then we split them uh, between each other. And so I took some teams, and Brittany took some teams, and then we we went on researching those teams and then really trying to track down some of the players from those teams. Um, I'm a big history buff. I don't know if that that played a uh, huge part, but Brittany, you could speak to that. So I ended up covering a lot of the history as far as when football was first invented and how women began trying to play the sport from its inception on to when uh, the league was first started. So I covered that area. Uh, Brittany did a lot of the analysis. That's that's really the way their brain works in a way that mine doesn't. So that was a good um, companion to, to, like I said, how we worked well together. And my fiction background helped sort of set the scenes for some, some of the narratives and, and, and player stories. So we just, we really combined our strengths and sort of, sort of played to that. Yeah. And I think, you know, in terms of researching and, and finding these things, it starts with, newspaper articles um, going into the archives and that's where you get player names and then you try to track those people down and usually once you find one there they might be in touch with like one other person um, and the dominoes start to fall that way and once you get in touch with the players that's where the source material that you're not going to find in a newspaper is discovered the players that kept their game day programs, the players that had these playbooks with all the plays written out. Um, There was always like one player on each team who had a closet full of memorabilia of photos and programs and all of those things that, you know, they'd kept all these years. And as soon as you found that one, it was golden. Um, But it was definitely a combination of archival research and um, having former players help track people down. And then a lot of like stalking boomer women on Facebook was some of it as well, um, which wasn't always successful, but we found several players that way too. Yeah. And yeah, I, I have not seen the full, uh, I actually have uh, most of the documentary. I, I know it's still sort of in process that, that Olivia is putting together or has put together. Um, but I, I, I get the sense as you're looking for these people, not all of them strangely want to be found uh you know maybe a that was a period of time uh when i was playing it was a different part of my life and that kind of stuff um how do you get folks to kind of or or was it was that more the minority and the majority of people were like oh my god you found me and i never thought i'd talk about this ever again and i'm happy to I actually have a Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was I was going to say, I think the majority for us were very excited to talk. And they were like, I can't believe someone remembers and someone wants to tell our story. And they were very enthusiastic about it. Incredibly grateful. I get texts um, every NFL Sunday now from these women giving me the play-by-play analysis on whatever NFL game is on. And I don't have the heart to tell them that I don't watch football um, you know, but they were very excited about it. But Lindsay had a different experience with with a player who ended up being one of our major sources. And so I, um, I'll let her tell you about that. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to go into that. Um, the player's name is Rose Lowe. And 
she was a captain on the LA Dandelions, a very prominent player, did a lot of uh, speaking and, and television and commercial appearances uh, just to promote the team and the league. But uh, I had talked to a few different players from the LA Dandelions and, and they kept saying, you got to talk to Rose, you got to talk to Rose and got her number. Um, she wouldn't return my calls. She wouldn't return my emails. And she was just very, um, you know, uh, she, she wanted somebody to be real and trust, like she wanted to be able to trust somebody with the story. That was her major issue. And she, you know, she didn't know me, you know, she didn't know my background and didn't know how legitimate I was. And so finally, after the prodding of one of her teammates, um, I, she answered one of my texts and we texted back and forth a few times. And then that moved on to a phone call. And after we talked a couple of times, she felt comfortable with me. And once that happened, and once she realized what we wanted to do with this project and, and where we wanted to take it and how earnest we were, she opened up and she provided so much information. And, um, a lot of this book wouldn't have been be able to be written without her, her knowledge and her information, her, just the, what she supplied as far as um, documents and pictures. It was just really incredible. And she's one of my biggest supporters now, one of our biggest supporters. Um, she's just been in touch throughout the entire writing process and sending me care packages during the writing process. And she's just, she's just really incredible. So it's just a matter, I think of, them believing we were doing this for the right reasons and that we were going to tell their story the way it needed to be told. Yeah. I think in some of the women had been contacted over the years of people saying that they were going to write books. I know several members of the Oklahoma city dolls told me this. And so when I came calling, they're wary. They're like, we've heard this before. We've opened our hearts. We've sent everything that we have and nothing came of it. And is this going to be any different? And for some people, I think they looked me up and looked Lindsay up and saw that we were legitimate. And some people just chose, you know, they got on the phone and they chose to trust me uh, and trust that we were going to do right by them, but that they had been burned before with people, you know, saying that they wanted to tell the story and then uh, never materializing. All right, one more question on the process, then I want to sort of dig in some of the actual story part of it. But uh, it it feels to me like... um, that there wasn't, and maybe frankly still isn't, uh, a whole lot of uh, third-party research out there, right? Uh, a lot of your book is is devoted to uh, the people involved and, and their first-person stories. Um, uh, is it a I, – I, I'm guessing there wasn't a whole lot of coverage, if you will, in the quote-unquote press, or at least the mainstream press, or, or in – digitized or, uh, you know, microfiched uh, memories of, of said press when it, there used to be a press um, was a lot of this sort of uh, 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 generating a story from uh, the perhaps somewhat tall tales uh, told to you first person, or was there even a framework of third party data and resources and statistics, et cetera, to, to even hang your hat on? Well, there the thing about the coverage is there was actually a lot in local newspapers when the teams launched. It was very much considered to be a curiosity. And a lot of the teams were not in huge markets. So, you know, Toledo, Ohio doesn't have a lot of 
uh, other pro teams that they're competing with um, for coverage. And so this was really people couldn't believe that there was a women's football team. And so recreating the early years of the league and the, the way the teams started was actually pretty easy because that coverage exists. And even though a lot of it um, is skewed by the perspective of the people, usually men who were writing the stories at the time, the stats, the scores, um, the play-by-play stuff usually is pretty dependable. And then you've got game programs, which have schedules. Um, They'll have results from past seasons. And so, you know, that exists. And so it was in a lot of ways, it was a combination of taking these 50 year old memories and comparing them up against what you have from the newspapers and making that make sense. Um, I will say that we wrote this book during the pandemic and there are some cities whose local papers are not digitized, those archives. And so we were not able to do as much of the archival research as we would have liked to have done because we couldn't take trips to those archives, Um, but we did the best that we could. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, one of the failures of the league itself was that they didn't keep stats. They didn't keep records of, you know, just player stats, team stats, league stats, uh, uh, anything that we could have kind of weigh the information we gathered from newspapers against. Um, one of my resources was um, the Women's Football Encyclopedia by Neil Rosendahl, who did a ton of research and put together a lot of information from those days um, as all the way up to the current leagues. And so that was a great reference uh, book as far as writing the history and then trying to to compare stats and whatnot. But that was the only book that I had to come that we had to compare against. Um, So it was hard as as far as that, but we're hoping, you know, with this book, it's going to open up doors, right? And more people will come forward and maybe more information will be shared and, and whatever we got wrong will be uh, corrected or, um, you know, what we got right will be supported, things of that nature. So, um, you know, being the first out of the gate to talk about this league on this scale, um, that's what we're hoping to do is, is sort of just, open up that door. Well, I, I know there are some tributaries of, of, of women involved in the sport of football, uh, as we know it, uh, American football, quote unquote, uh, or early on. I mean, there's, uh, I know there's a Smithsonian piece on, that came out a couple of years ago about um, uh, some stuff from the 19, late thirties, uh, some, some photo shoots from life magazine and, and whatnot. But I, I guess the, the, to really focus sort of around, the the uh, origination of the National Women's Football League. Um, I, 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 my understanding, and, and a little bit is addressed in your book too, uh, actually quite a bit of it, is it, this was preceded by, I guess we should talk about this guy, Sid Friedman. He seems like a good place to kind of originate it because my understanding based on what you're writing is and some of the crack research I've done on the, on the side, uh, it was almost sort of a, um, I don't want to call it a lark, but but a, uh, a, a curiosity uh, generator, I guess, of having "quote unquote" the gals play this men's game known as football uh, prior to the league actually getting going. Yeah, I actually purchased those um, copies of uh, two Life magazines that that talked about or covered women's football in the 1930s, and then again in 19 early 1970s. Um, 
just to get the the real article in front of me and to see the pictures and everything. And um, it's really awesome to see. But as far as Sid Friedman goes, yeah, he was kind of the impetus. Um, we kind of dubbed him the the P.T. Barnum of, of women's football because he was this uh, promoter from Cleveland, Ohio, who who promoted beauty pageants and outrageous competitions such as the he did a competition once for the to who could break the world record for longest harmonica played and things of that nature he was trying to to do these outlandish things to get attention and 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 make money off of and he sort of saw the potential from seeing women play football in different areas of the country and and sort of honed in on that and, and was like hmm maybe there's something here and he decided to start his own women's football troupe in the vein of the Harlem Globetrotters um, to to play against men's teams and sort of tour them around the Rust Belt area of the country, um, Erie, PA, Buffalo, New York, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, that area right there. And uh, once he started this team, he did it with the intention of, of an act, you know, a gimmick of making money and what he saw were was a bunch of women who who were not only talented and athletes in their own right, but who could understand the game, wanted to play the game and, and were good at it. And so he decided to start other women's teams and um, even had a vision for doing his own league, but it never really got off the ground, was never really legitimized the, in, in, or covered by the newspapers the way the NWFL was later on. But he really was the one who started it. Um, whatever his intentions, he will always be a part of that history. Yeah. And I think where it starts to fall apart for Sid is that it always was this money-making, attention-grabbing venture for him. And the women wanted to actually play and they took themselves seriously in a way that Sid was never going to. And it starts to fall apart for him when some of the teams decide they're going to break off on their own um, and kind of come out from under his thumb and go independent. And it was that happening that allowed a lot of these other kind of fledgling independent uh, teams to come together and form the NWFL. But it absolutely happened because the women took themselves so seriously and were determined to make the league um, something real and not something for people to laugh at and not to be a curiosity or a gimmick. And these, these exhibitions, I guess, or the, the, the play was what were these dedicated events or uh, were they halftime attractions at other sporting events at what, how, how was this being quote unquote showcased prior to the league being formed? Well, he tried to do, he tried to do different partnerships like with the end, FL and, and, and do halftime shows. And he, he barked about it in the press, you know, he boasted about things that he, he didn't have really um, set up and he was more, I mean, he was a promoter till the end, you know, he talked more than what was really there uh, to show, but he tried and, you know, that never materialized. So his, his, his thing was to set up these games against, like I said, at first it was against men's teams and then, um, he had some other women's teams that he created and then did like a, a round robin kind of competition, um, tried to hold a, 
bill like a Super Bowl um, for for like a championship game, but um, it never really took off the way he wanted it to. The way the way he I, he envisioned teams all over the he envisioned an 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 NFL like thing for for women, um, but he could never be, honestly think it's because he he owned each team that he had under his belt he didn't want to give up control and that hindered his ability to, to extend out and um, expand um, in a way that the NWFL was able to do separately of, of him. Well, you describe him though, uh, in the beginning, it seems like he almost, and I sort of hate to hate to frame it this way. It almost feels like that he originally envisioned maybe before uh, recruiting uh, women to play and, and, and getting these exhibitions up, up and running. He was almost envisioning something what became later on, as we know today, the, the, the much maligned uh, lingerie football league where right, with the tearaway jerseys and sort of the sexy kind of something. Um, do I have that right? I mean, I got the sense that that was sort of maybe the, maybe the original germ in his head, Mr. Promotion. He would have gone that way if the women would have let him, he reportedly sent hustler magazine out to photograph some of the practices. And um, we know of at least one team, potentially two, that this happened with. And the women's, you know, sent him home, the photographer. They were absolutely not going to do it. But I think Sid would have done anything, including sending the players out on the field in lingerie, if it would have made his league successful. Interesting. Uh, sadly, interesting. So what, okay, what, then, I mean, I, obviously we want people to get the book, to get all the sort of the details and stuff, but I, I, what is the crux of uh, the, 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 the I'm, I'm assuming mostly the women, but I got to think there were other folks involved too. I know you mentioned a few like Bill Stout, for example. Um, what is the crux of the pivot, shall we say? The, how does it go from we're not going to take this anymore, so to speak, and we're going to go out and, and form this into a legit league of competition from what Sid's been doing with us for the last number of years. And this is I, when, I 1974, correct? 1974, yeah. I don't think that was the original intention of, of – so you have Sid doing his thing, and then all these other teams started popping up because people were kind of paying attention, women's football, women playing football was this – kind of curiosity novelty thing that people were like, Oh, this is new. You know, what's this about? And so you had other, other owners pop up and be like, well, I'm going to start a football team. And um, there was a team that, and Brittany could speak more on this that started in Dallas, the Dallas blue bonnets. Um, and, and they, uh, they was started by um, a couple of brothers who had a brother in LA who decided to start his own team, the LA dandelions, Bob Matthews. And, um, you had all these different teams kind of pop up separately of Sid. And then those teams got together and um, a couple of teams under Sid left and they got, they, you know, with Bob Matthews decided to say, let's start our own league. And that's really kind of how it happened. Yeah. There were these teams that existed in, you know, 1972 was when the Dallas team, the blue bonnet started and, the Toledo Troopers started in 1971, the year before. Um, they were coached by Bill Stout, and they were the first team to leave Sid. Um, 
the troopers, as I, you know, said, were the winningest team in pro football history and they took themselves incredibly seriously, but they were killing other teams. Other teams didn't stand a chance and Sid wanted them to throw um, some games because he thought it would be better for the league if it appeared to be more even competition. And the troopers were insulted by this. And ultimately, um, because they had Bill Stout, who really believed in them as much as he did, they felt able to leave Sid's uh, loose association of of teams. But Sid retaliated, actually, um, and wouldn't let the troopers play any of his teams um, the next year in 1973, which is the year before the NWFL started. And so... The Troopers played very few games that year, and they could only play, you know, the Dallas Blue Bonnets, who weren't one of Sid's teams, and, and a few other um, teams that weren't under um, Sid Friedman. And so I think when the opportunity presented for those other teams to come together, it allowed um, a lot of these teams that were operating on their own and didn't necessarily have opponents uh, to come together to find a way to play. And it also provided an opportunity for some of the teams like Detroit who had been under Sid's thumb to decide that they could leave. Yeah. Interesting because this is also, I think, you know, if you look at it longitudinally, uh, this is also in the era, the 1970s, early mid 1970s, where it seemed like there was no sport under the sun that wasn't um, uh, opportunistic for certain promoters and organizers to, uh, to create a pro league around, right? I mean, we, we've talked to, uh, Dennis Murphy, the late Dennis Murphy, he of ABA and World Hockey Association and uh, part of the world football. I mean, you're talking about all kinds of leagues, international volleyballs. I mean, all kinds of stuff going on uh, in the 70s. So it it didn't it didn't say it. Actually, you put that in that perspective. It doesn't sound all that crazy an idea, um, uh, especially when there are some really serious clubs that, frankly, are looking for more regular and competitive uh, play after having essentially proven the case in sort of exhibition form, uh, whatever that was under under Friedman. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely not a wild idea, particularly it's a gap in the market, right? If American football, if football is one of the most popular sports in the country, um, a football league for women who, you know, that doesn't exist yet. Um it seems like it would be a really good opportunity. The The challenge becomes, and as you know, because you basically study leagues that don't uh, succeed. Sadly. <laughs> um, but there's so much to be learned from that, you know? And I think when you look, we, uh, as you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about more, we, we have a whole section of the book dedicated to like what happened, right? And what I, I think is really interesting about this is, Anyone who knows anything about the trajectory of a sports league is not going to be like, I'm going to buy a team and I will be rich next year. But these men kept deciding to like bankroll women's football teams, thinking that within a couple seasons, they would be raking in money because they were tapping into some gap in the market. Not only does that not account for the way that um, leagues tend to go and, and the trajectory for any sports league to become um, profitable, but they're also not counting on the sexism that keeps women's sports leagues in particular from, um, you know, sometimes taking longer to catch on or that, that might keep uh, specifically male fans 
um, away from the game. And so it just seems like there was a lot of really well-intentioned people. Most of them were men who owned these teams, um, but they didn't understand what they were getting into and they didn't have deep enough pockets um, or the willingness to continue to bankroll um, these these teams for the long haul. Did most of these male owners um, underestimate uh, the uh, the spirit, the competitive spirit and the seriousness is the, the seriousness that you were alluding to of the play. Um, I, I'd have to think that the vast majority of these gentlemen uh, were looking at this still sort of in the Fried, Friedman esque kind of realm is more of a promotable curiosity than a competitive athletic league. I think some before the league was started that we, we account, there was a team in New York, the New York Phillies that had so much potential, but the owner just wanted to make a quick buck and he knew nothing about football. He knew nothing about, you know, investing in the team. And then like Brittany mentioned the long haul, it would take and, and really, you know, getting the right coaches and getting the right training. And um, they played the, you know, troopers and got crushed. And I don't think they won a game um, throughout their short tenure. And, and he just kind of gave up uh, soon after that, it was kind of a mess. But um, once the NWFL started, Bob Matthews with the LA Dandelions really had good intentions and really believed in his team and really wanted to, to make it, uh, you know, as a legitimate league, he had all the right, he had, he had all the right, um, reasons for doing it. Um, but it just, uh, he couldn't afford, I think the, the full on investment and he tried different ways to cut expenses and things like that. Um, it really was just a lack of cohesiveness within the league itself. I mean, there were so many other things that contributed to the downfall um, besides maybe the, the lack of, um, you know, long-term views with the owners. Uh, there was just a lack of media coverage. Initially, it started out, you know, the curiosity was there. So there was a lot of coverage at first and gamers and things like that. And then that petered out. Uh, after a couple of years with the league. And then if you, we had trouble finding information about games played later on because there was just no coverage. And then the lack of fans, the lack of, um, you know, getting promotions and, and advertisements and, and sponsors, all of that came into play. Um, so it wasn't just the short-sightedness of some of the owners. There was a lot that, that influenced that, but I definitely think just to answer your initial question, there were some owners who were, who were definitely invested and definitely wanted to see it, you know, go the long, go the long haul, um, especially teams that were owned by the players themselves, like the Houston Hurricanes who were player funded and, and player started and player owned. Um, they wanted to see it succeed, but uh, there was just so many, so many hurdles they couldn't get over. And what's interesting is sometimes the owners, believed more in the women than the men that were hired to coach the teams. Um, you hear a lot from the players that there was a coach who maybe didn't last very long because he underestimated the women and talked down to them. And these women were, com 
they were underestimated so much and most of them were not put up with that. And so there are many teams that you'll read about having a head coach for like the first year. And then his name is never mentioned again. And you ask the players what happened and they'll be like, you know, he didn't treat us well. He talked to us like we were stupid. He was, you know, saying inappropriate things to us and it didn't work. So we found somebody else. Um, And I think that also there were, I think the, the Dandelions coach, Lindsay is his name, Bob Edwards. And admitted that he didn't expect much when he came out. Um, But he quickly understood that these women were a lot more talented than he had given himself them credit for. Um, And he adjusted accordingly. Like he gave them a much harder playbook (laughs) plays to run the next season because he realized that they could do it. And so again, I think it's dependent And I think there were some men who underestimated the women, but there were a lot that once they got out there, uh, realized like how great they were. And once they were in, they were all in alongside the players. Yes. Bob Edwards is, is correct. And and that's exactly what happened. And I love that he admitted that, that he admitted he underestimated, you know, their capabilities and and their, their ability to soak up the knowledge and the, and the playbook. He gave them a much more extensive playbook the second season and was like, let's go. Um, so yeah, that uh, that was a problem as well. Where were these players coming from? And similarly, how are they finding out about this league? How are they being quote unquote recruited, um, and 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 making a go out of it? Right, because I, I would imagine at the turn of the decade, the early seventies, um, there there wasn't sort of an obvious pool of players uh, to sort of draw from because there was no real competitive American football uh, circuit of any kind, really uh, pro or otherwise for, for women. Yeah, there was no, (laughs) there was no youth football. There was no high school football. There was no college football for women. Right. right? Um, Usually they played, a lot of them have stories of, of just playing in the backyards and lots with uh, the neighborhood kids or their brothers, you know, that's when they were first exposed. There was no pipeline, so so to speak. And um, by the time they, they were able to play in this league, you know, some of them were being introduced for the first time to the rules and regulations and getting down a three-point stance and um, plays, all of that. So there was really no exposure for them or ability for them to learn the game. So they're learning it on the fly. And also there was no draft. You know, every team that was started was taking um, players from the the pool of players they had in that area. So if you had a bunch of talented players in Toledo, as far as the troopers are concerned, you know, that's what you got. And then you have a team down in Tulsa. There was a team called the Tulsa Babes who likened themselves to the um, Bad News Bears. Um, They, you know, they only had the players that they could could get on the team and come out for the team. So it's really basically what you had in the area to work with and, and, and to be able to go from there. Yeah. But most of the women were lifelong athletes and they were excellent athletes in other sports. Um, The quarterback for the Oklahoma city dolls was part of the first softball team at the university of Oklahoma under title nine. And, you know, she's not an outlier. A lot of them played um, sports growing up and in club leagues and recreationally. Um, 
Mary Morrison on the Columbus Paysetters was a swimmer. She swam um, at Ohio State University. Um, so, you know, they're all athletes and they're finding the team through newspaper ads usually. Um, and then through news coverage, you know, it's featured on the local news at night because it's a curiosity again, but that's how people see it. And that's how they're finding people is, you know, mostly through a newspaper ad. And then, you know, as we talk about in the book, um, not all of the players, but a large number of the players were gay. And a lot of the local lesbian bars um, in the cities often had like club softball teams and things like that, that they played through the bars and um, word of mouth spread through the community as well um, that way. And a lot of the players came out because their friends were playing. So that's, that, that, that's interesting. Let me ask you sort of a parallel question as it relates to that. What then, given that mix of, of, of player, right? Uh, some straight, some gay, uh, you know, word of mouth, a relatively collegial kind of sort. What's the market then? Right. So maybe put put the owner's hat on here because, you know, uh, you, I, you could erroneously say that, OK, here's yet another uh, professional league in in a decade that is launching a whole bunch of them, um, which sounds to me typically geared towards the usually not always, but usually male oriented classic sports fan. Right. But clearly, um both by gender as well as by sport and spectacle, um, this is a different concept and a different sell, right? Um, I, I could see more than a few owners maybe getting confused as to what kind of product, quote unquote, they would be able to market with. Yeah, um, I think. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I don't even know if that made any sense, but hopefully. Yeah, we can't see each other, so we're we can't take cues that way. Um, I was going to say, you know, the product probably on the field like I would liken it to like a good like high school football team um, and they're calling themselves pro so like let's be real about what we're watching um, but also there's this like we just said wildly different skill levels and we still see that in women's football today you have teams like the Boston Renegades who um are kind of the modern day equivalent of the troopers who are like crushing opponents by like 50 points a game. Um, and just these wild skill disparities again, because there's this lack of pipeline, but I think you ask a good question about the market and um, particularly in a state like Ohio. And this is important because this is part of why the league struggled. I think, you know, it's, there's a built-in fan base for football in a state like Ohio, right? Where, you know, Ohio State football is um, kind of king and, and Sunday game day is a really big deal. Um, and the the women who played grew up, like, just really wanting to play football because that, that was just what you did. Um, and so you think, okay, there's a built-in market, but you also have a lot of competition, right? And so how do you distinguish, how do you make the community want to come out and root for say the Columbus Paysetters when they could be watching an Ohio state game. And that's hard. Uh, the Paysetters, for example, uh, marketed themselves as family friendly entertainment. Um, they promoted themselves as selling tickets uh, for the same uh, price as a movie ticket, which was about three fifty at the time. Um, 
and that it was much more appropriate for kids than maybe a college game day might be uh, and much more accessible. And I think that was, you know, the gap that they tried to fill. And I think it's similar to the one that other leagues might have. But like you have the Dallas team, the Dallas Blue Bonnets were playing in Texas Stadium where the Cowboys also played. And you have them getting cavernous. Yeah, they're getting, you know, three, four thousand fans to a game, which is great. But think about three or four thousand people in Texas Stadium. That's less like one percent of the stadium or something. Um, And yeah, it's it's hard, I think, to break in um, and to keep that sustained interest, especially in places where there's already those established teams. I Brittany covered a lot there. I, I just want to add that I think part of the owners were banking on that curiosity factor, you know, of women playing a sport that that it wasn't a usual thing for people to witness, you know, come out, see this, see, you know, check this out kind of a thing. But also I think they were naive um, to the fact, you know, the N- NFL was getting popular at the time. And I think they, they were naive thinking they could, um, put a, a team together and just have a product akin to the NFL where you would, you know, have a regular fan base, you know, that's something that needs to be built over time and um, to have the experience, like we talked about earlier for women to have build up their, their talent level from, from a young age to, to, um, to grownups uh, like, like the men have, you know, with, with high school and college football and all of that. So um, I just think there was a lot of naivety there on, on, on some of the owners parts and, and maybe even the league itself. Was there ever any um, attempt uh, by uh, either, by either side from the NFL, uh, the fledgling WFL, maybe even the uh, semi-pro continental football league um, to um, quote unquote partner uh, with uh, this fledgling NWFL, or perhaps from the NWFL owners themselves, uh, s- extending an olive branch to those leagues and saying if there's some kind of, I don't know, partnership, marketing relationship, et cetera, um, during these years. The Cowboys um, did a pep rally with the Blue Bonnets, and there was a promotional image of like a former Cowboy player buying a ticket to a Blue Bonnets game. And again, they shared a stadium, but it didn't really translate to anything more than that. I will say the players, for the players, that was enough. You know, they were like completely tickled that they were even acknowledged. The Detroit team, the Demons, their uniforms were hand-me-downs from the Lions. Those uniforms went to three different Michigan teams over the course of 10 years, which tells you how little financing these teams had. So when the Demons folded, they went to a different um, team that sprung up in Michigan. And when that team folded, they went to another one. So those hand-me-down uniforms from the Lions were in use for like a decade. All, Um, All in blue and silver, I'm gathering. Yes. It's funny because I had never seen a color picture of the Demons. And in my head, because their name was the Demons, they were like black and red, even though I know the lions are blue and silver. And I recently was sent a color picture by the family of one of the coaches. And I was like, oh, my God, of course, that's what they would look like. But it just like wasn't what I was thinking. But, you know, to answer the question, I don't 
think like the partnership didn't go beyond that. They didn't then say, we're going to promote the, the Detroit demons and tell our fans to go watch their games. They just gave them their cast off uniforms. I don't think there was the wherewithal to do that, to, to even think about that partnership. And that's where the league made a, made a bunch of short sighted moves uh, in that regard, like, you know, what a great opportunity. You look at the WNBA and you have teams like the, the Phoenix Suns and, and their partnership and support of the Phoenix Mercury and vice versa. Um, you know, that's just one example, but, you know, the potential was there. It's just, they didn't utilize it. How much uh, was the, uh, the fact that if this was a women's league, how much did that count against uh, all of this from from gaining uh, more long term uh, success. I mean, Lord knows it's, it was hard enough, you know, to get a challenger football league or a challenger basketball league or, uh, you know, co-ed uh, volleyball with the International Volleyball Association. It's self fascinating uh, story that we've explored on a couple of previous episodes. But, you know, you had the Women's Basketball League or the Women's Professional Basketball League. They seem to conveniently drop the P from the acronym uh, for some reason as I did, but that got started in the latter part of the, uh, of the decade. And that took a couple of years and, and didn't really sort of, I, and I, I guess it's also maybe projecting into the future, which is dangerous, but um, you know, th- there is this reality, I guess that, that women's leagues have had a harder time getting, uh, I don't know, these sort of um, long-term uh, solid traction uh, that the men have uh, uh, largely enjoyed. I, obviously, that's changing over time. We'll get to that a little later. But was it harder, I guess, because it was a women's, quote unquote, league playing football than, say, if it was uh, some other endeavor that uh, was either co-ed or, or male-oriented? Yeah, I mean, we talked to David Barry, um, who is – the co-author of the economics of the Super Bowl about this for the book. And, and we go into it and part of it is, you know, the comparison we use is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, and just like how much money is dropped into a team um, before it wins anything, how many, how many years it's allowed to be a losing team, a failing team, um, and and how much like rope it's given essentially, and women's leagues are never given the same chance. Um, kind of like we said earlier, these a lot of these owners thought that this was going to be a financial success within a couple of years, but even a league like the NFL, ninety percent of those franchises, you know, failed. Um, it took decades for the NFL to get to where it is today. Um, and it is absolutely true that over time, over and over again, men's leagues are allowed to just be leeching money and, um, owners, usually men, rich men will continue to put money into those failing leagues and failing teams. And women's leagues are never given that same investment. And the plug is pulled at like the first sign that it's not, um, you know, making money as quickly as these, again, usually men hope that it will be. Yeah, I'm also guessing, too, that the economic expectations were, you use the word naivete. Um, I mean, I, I'm I'm guessing 
the majority of the revenues were expected to be at the gate, right? Because there was no media per se, right? Um, and, you know, obviously you have to look at this in context where we're, we're in a world where, you know, things like sponsorships and, and player endorsements and all that kind of stuff, right? It's, just, it's, it's not even in, in the equation for this story. But I guess the, the, the question in there is, how much or how little was being put into these teams to start with? Like, what did it mean to be an owner financially here? And then secondly, where else was the money going to come from aside from ticket sales, which it sounded like there wasn't a whole lot for marketing and, and that kind of stuff. So even that was already probably compromised. Yeah. I think for some reason, you know, some of the owners thought that people would just show up from the curiosity point of view and then tell their friends and and that would just keep it would keep growing um but they didn't in like you said the the promotion and the marketing was severely lacking um even when you talk about the la dandelions and their proximity to hollywood and what all the potential there um partnership with nfl teams like we had mentioned earlier there was a lot of ways to like drum up excitement and you know, the lack of media attention was no fault of the owners. You know, that's just the way the system was built up. You know, you had a lot of male sports writers, male sports editors who didn't think it 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 deserved coverage, especially after maybe a game or two, you know, and, and put their resources elsewhere that, that hindered the league. But um, there were other things that, that owners could have done and maybe put money towards to help grow the visibility of the teams, the league and, and all of that. And it just, they just didn't, didn't have the wherewithal and force foresight to do that. Um, but that's what you need to do, right? Like we see that now with the WNBA. I mean, there's been extensive growth with, with um, the league these past five years, but the WNBA just recently in the past three years started putting more games on television and, and attracting more fans. And it's, You've seen grow, uh, viewership grow year over year uh, since they started doing that. And it's just like, where's the disconnect? You have to put put people, give people notice, you know, tell them where to find it, show the product in, in order for people to maybe come out and see and then become fans. And back in, in the 1970s, that just wasn't even part of the equation. Yeah, it's sampling exposure, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to talk about finances, it costs like $11,000, something like that to start a team. The players were paid anywhere from 12 to $25 a game. And usually they didn't even receive that because they didn't make that much money. They had concessions. Um, there were the Toledo troopers had like a booster club that sold raffle tickets Local businesses would take out ad space in their programs. Um, but also you have to cover the cost of your stadium rental. You have to cover the cost of, in theory, the players' salaries, which they weren't really getting. You had to hire a referee team. Um, most of the teams were, you know, they were losing money. Um and the yeah the finances just weren't there. Yeah, and I might even you're not even going to mention insurance, which is probably not even a, that's probably an afterthought at that time at that point. It was no, one actually, of the first things to go. Yeah, Lindsay yeah. can talk yeah. more about this. Well, but well, 
I was going to say, yeah, um, the t- some teams had insurance. You know, I don't know about the player-funded teams, um, but one of the things Bob Matthews did to cut expenses was he had insurance. He cared about his players um, in a way I think that some other owners didn't, but it got to a point where even that had to go um, for him and, you know, something he didn't really want to do but ended up doing, and even that, you know, was just such a minor to a minor hit to his overall ex- overall expenses and um that was really when the writing was on the wall for him as far as eventually selling the team my sense is both from my conversation with olivia some of the the part of the documentary certainly in the book that uh to a woman um there was more to it than getting maybe a check that this was Mm -hmm. a uh, esprit de corps. It was us versus them. It was family. It was playing a game that they loved or it was were curious about or found themselves decent at uh, a chance to play. Uh, the word professional uh, thrown around uh, to you know for the ego. Um, do I have that right? That perhaps uh, aside from the shenanigans of, of uh, paycheck to paycheck and ownership and shakiness of the league and all that stuff that there was sort of an underlying core of just sheer love of playing and wanting to play or yes. am I projecting? Yes. The prevailing answer we got from so many different players was that they just wanted to play. They loved the game of football and they just wanted to play. And it, it was really no, nothing more than that. Yeah. I will say I've, we have, I've been talking um, this week with Linda Stamps, who founded the Columbus Paysetters. And she they were one of the teams that left Sid um, because of his exploitation. And she talks about how they kind of muscled their way into existence through sheer love of the game, that they just were determined to be on the gridiron. And that was what they wanted. Um, and Everything they did was guided by that. But also what happened in the process of being able to play was that being empowered to play on the field empowered them off the field too. And it became so much bigger than just the game. And, you know, that team says that they felt like they were able to kind of leverage the power they felt through playing football to band together and eventually purchase their team. They formed a corporation to buy out the men that owned them. Um, And that, but playing football gave them that it gave them the ability to believe that they could because they could come together and do so much on the field. And I, I love that it was so much, it was, it was, always about the love of the game and that's where it started and that love allowed also so much else to happen for them so i hate to sort of sort of bring us sort of down to a crashing what what happened to the to all of it then i mean i'm sure you you mentioned there were some multiple reasons but and i think frankly a lot of those are probably self-evident based on this conversation but what ultimately sort of brought it to a crashing halt that it just couldn't be it just couldn't keep going uh, after, a f- I guess it was a few years, right? It was 78, 79-ish or so. Actually, we, we called the heyday of the league, the 74 through about 79. That's when the most teams were in existence um, and the most action was happening. But teams continued to play until 1988. 
Um, yeah, and by the way, you, you, I'm sorry, you see that in the book, like in your in your uh, the background of the chapters here, when you list the teams and the divisions and the years that they played, uh, there's no neat start and stop to any of those, right? Some of them were formative, like we hinted at before, but yeah, there are a number of them that kept soldiering on, I guess, in what form is the question. Yeah, and we could be wrong. Honestly, some of those were best guess answers because, again, there was really no newspaper coverage. And if there's not newspaper coverage, we don't even really have names. We don't know who we're looking for or what we're looking for. Um, I think that my hope out of this is that um, the publishing of this book will actually give us a better idea of the landscape of the league in the 80s, of those teams that kept trying um, and folding and popping back up. Um, and, you know, there were most of the seasons in the 80s, there were maybe three teams in the league uh, that just kept playing each other over and over and over again. Uh, they they definitely, they tried. So we we put the, le- the years of the league as 74 to 88, and that's our best guess. Interesting. So even with three or so teams that was still considered the NWFL. Yes. They were still trucking along. Well, they, I think they were hoping to keep it going and then have, you know, more teams come on. Brittany can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was part of their motivation to just keep it alive. Yeah. In what you'll read when you read coverage that the the little coverage that does exist, exist from those later years, it'll say there's only three teams this season but there are these five that are hoping to get something off the ground and join the league next season. And then you look at next season and that never happened. Um, Or one would pop up and and wouldn't last. And some teams combined, um, there were teams in Michigan that combined into one team halfway through the season, like for the championship game, um, because they didn't have enough players to field a team. So, but we we count it um, because it all sprung from, that same umbrella, they're still calling themselves the NWFL. Um, the Columbus Paysetters, who are the only team that that ran from 74 to 88, have a 15th anniversary program um, from 1988 that honors all the players that played um, over the course of those 15 seasons. And that was one team. And um, there was a woman who coached, um, her name's Andy Dameron, and she was coaching in the 80s until 88, which was, we believe the last year that team took the field, she started playing in 74. She was on that original team. Uh, so she kept that going all of those years. That's dedication. So uh, quick tangent. And then I want to sort of wrap up, I guess, with a triumvirate of questions that maybe pulls us into modern day of 2021. Uh, yeah, yeah, trust me, it'll, it'll be painless. Uh, but the side, <laughs> the side question is this, um, with the advent of title nine, uh, in the seventies ish, um, was there any, uh, uh, effort, uh, because of, of this pro football league for women, was there any, um, were there any seeds, uh, crossing the, uh, the field, shall we say, uh, pollinating to the collegiate level to maybe cons- consider the idea of women's football being a thing? at the collegiate level, or was that, am I just sort of assuming too much here? Cause yeah, you, that wasn't interesting. That wasn't timing, a, right? Yeah, it was, it was interesting timing. And we say in the book that it was actually the perfect, perfect timing for the, for the league to take flight. But as far as anything other than doing this, this pro league, um, 
like you mentioned on the collegiate level, no, um, not at all. It was women's sports then. I think basketball was still, um, you know, in its early stages for women. I, I, I'm, I forget the date, but I'm not sure women were even allowed to play full court basketball at that time. I mean, there were, you know, it was still just in the early stages. There was just no way that football was probably even on the minds of, of people to think that, you know, this was something they could do on the collegiate level. I mean, now it's, you know, we're in a different world and you have flag football organizations popping up at the high school and the collegiate level. Um, uh, There was a big push by the NFL, I think just recently this past year um, to support that and sponsor that. So um, now there are different avenues, but back then it was just too early. uh, one of the players, Rose Lowe, who I mentioned earlier, said it was just she said um, that she thinks they just happened before their time. Well, that definitely leads me to, to the other questions. Right. So what came after this? I know that wasn't the focus of the book. Right. But what kind of, quote unquote, leagues uh, have been spawned since? Is uh, it been relatively ragtag? I know there have been a, a few tackle leagues uh, that have sort of popped up and, and have been around uh, in in various levels. Obviously, we've we've there've been more circus like things like the lingerie slash legends thing, which is you know more farcical than anything else, I think. Uh, uh, and I guess the other parallel question to that is, um, had this not happened in the mid nineteen seventies, perhaps later in the eighties or the nineties. Could we be talking about a a longer standing and longer lasting women's professional football league? I, was the timing just truly too early? Stunned silence. <laughs> well, I mean, just building on on what I what I had said previously, like yes, I think it was too early. I think um, you know you're just coming off an era where. Uh, it was women, you know, there was this belief that if women exerted themselves too much, you know, they would get cancer or, you know, they, you know, one of the players joked in a, in a, in a NBC documentary that if they, they ran too much, their uterus would fall out. You know, there was just these preconceived notions and, and that were put out by medical professionals, even that women were not to, you know, overexert themselves. They weren't, built to be athletes. And so you're just coming out of that in the 1970s and title nine was relatively new and nobody really knew what it was going to do or what it was going to involve. I mean, some of the players didn't even know what title nine was um, even, even at that time. So it was definitely too early. And um, there were, there were football leagues that women's football leagues that started again in, in the late nineties, 1999, I think was when it started up again. Um, but even today, you know, women's football is just still having a hard time catching on. I mean, there's multiple reasons for that, but I think the primary primary one is um, that it's a masculine sport that some people just can't wrap their heads around women playing. Yeah, and I think the the current day state of women's football is really interesting because you have several semi-pro leagues that exist. Um and all of them want to see one centralized semi-pro or pro league. And they believe that that's the way forward um, in order for them to be successful. But they can't agree on what that looks like. 
I think there are people that would welcome the NFL stepping in. There are people that don't want that to happen. You're seeing a similar thing happen in women's hockey um, right now as well. And so if they, if, you know, the women's football world can't agree on what it looks like to come together as one unit and launch a league, I think they're going to have a really hard time um, because resources are still going to be, you know, split. But I do think it's interesting. I mentioned the Boston Renegades earlier. Um, they've won three back-to-back um, championships in the Women's Football Alliance. And uh, this year, the Patriots, their NFL counterpart, actually recognized them and Robert Kraft lent his charter jet um, so that they could get to their championship game. And he came to send them off. And um, their quarterback, Allison Cahill, has her jersey um, in the Football Hall of Fame. Uh, she's the winningest uh, quarterback in women's football history. Um, you know, the, the NWFL itself has not yet been recognized by the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but Allison Cahill's jersey is there. And so you start to see the maybe some of the players that are playing today are being taken more seriously or someone like Robert Kraft and the Patriots are using their platform to build up this one team. But in order for that to translate for to success for the entire sport itself, there's going to have to be a way that they come together um, and launch something as, as one unified brand. Yeah, it's interesting too because I think we're now in an era. Uh, I, 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 I somewhat cynically call it peak pro sports, right? Uh, some of these leagues and, and the, the gargantuan valuations and all that. It's, 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 it's bigger business than it's ever been, and I, I just don't know how long all that could sort of last at the top tier. But, but an interesting dynamic though is that there just seems to be an uh, uh, an insatiable appetite or or naivete or some combination thereof of of launching new leagues of all kinds of things. I mean, pickleball and futsal and uh, American Cornhole League. Whole league. I, they, and they're getting big bucks to do these things and, and television and, and streaming video and, and, and social media and stuff. Uh, Fan-controlled football, right? Which is, I, you know, the gambling thing. I, they, I, I'm not, I, I guess the question in there or the, the observation in there is that, um, if there's any uh, time in in history, I think modern history, last number of decades, to launch something with real money behind it, uh, and maybe truly solidify something like you're describing that that needs to be maybe coordinated and and put back together, uh, and maybe more professionalized. I mean, for example, I look at Athletes United, right, um, which is giving. Uh, you know, successful and popular women's quote unquote sports, um, a true professional um, architecture uh, to play softball, uh, to play volleyball. Uh, I, I, I could imagine other sports, I think lacrosse as well. I think I, I could see other sports sitting maybe like football or some some modified form of football, arguably not as CTE dangered as as the the pro game has become um perhaps is is a is a window or an opportunity um and you know you look at the WNBA finally getting some real uh i think uh, independent stability uh, aside from the distractions and the issues 
that still surround the NWSL. I mean, you have, you've got a team in, in Kansas city that's actually going to build its own soccer specific stadium specifically for women. I mean, there's so many uh, uh, advances that have happened in such a relatively short period of time. Finally, it just seems to me, and maybe I'm just wishing this or, or maybe I'm, I'm, I'm uh, hallucinating, but it seems to me if there's ever an opportunity for this sport, for women to play in a close to, if not fully professional environment, there just seems to be so many different opportunities possibly to do that now, assuming somebody wants to write the check and, and send a few more private planes their way. Yeah. And I think like Brittany mentioned, I, I think the different leagues that are functioning right now need to come together to maybe form, you know, one official league instead of trying to, to take from the same pool of, marketing and fans and, and investors and, and TV deals, all of that um, to have one central league would be the way to go. But also this is the right time to do it because there's so many different avenues to consume sports. Now um, you don't yeah. need, you know, a specific television deal, right? You can partner with Twitter. You can partner with YouTube. You can do something with Facebook. Um, just, there's just so many streaming at streaming avenues that that make it possible to to just find your own avenue to reach your fans who want to watch your product. So, yeah, we didn't, you know, have that back in the 70s obviously. I mean, there was just only one way to do it and the NWFL was certainly not on TV on a regular basis. I mean, there were a couple games um put on tape delay um you know, previously recorded and then aired another day. And I think there was one game that was filmed live, but there was nothing regular, uh, regularly oh, shown. Were you able to find those? I actually, so Rose, who I mentioned earlier, had um, <clears throat> sent me a a video um, that she had put uh, first on VHS and then transferred DVD and then had it transferred online and sent it to me. And it was um, game footage of of a game between uh, the Dandelions and the Dallas Blue Bonnets, um, which was awesome to see. It was part of a, a an NBC weekend segment in California, and then um, another newsreel clip from 1996 that um, uh, a NBC affiliate in California did uh, on the LA Dandelions. You know, after the fact and showed some of the players who were, who obviously were older in 1996, but um, yeah, it was great. It was, it was awesome to, it, it just added so much more to see the visual, but I mean, as far as I know, that's the only footage I was able to see. So there not much exists. Um, but yeah, so we're in a, we're in a different area going back to your original question. We're in a different area now, as far as um, access goes and, like I said, there's a lot of different avenues for these leagues to to explore and, and utilize. I will say if people want to see footage, um, the Toledo Troopers have social media accounts um, as part of, I think, a documentary that somebody is making. And there are clips of their games um, on their social media and YouTube channels. And they are also very cool. And as we talk about like lack of media coverage, the Renegades are streaming their games on Facebook Live. Like they're the best women's football team in the world and you have to watch their games on Facebook Live. And this is even when like the NWHL, now that 
the PHF, like at least they were stream they got an ESPN plus deal, but at least they were even streaming on Twitch. Um, there's like Lindsay said, there's so many platforms and the fact that women's football teams are still having to stream on Facebook live and, and set up their, their own streaming like that tells you, um, how little respect the game really gets. Well, look, maybe just maybe, uh, this book and, and, and the, uh, publicity that comes around it and from it, uh, may, uh, to your point earlier, may stoke some, some interest and some, uh, both uh, looking back as to what, uh, came before what exists today and maybe what could be the future, perhaps in some way, shape or form based on some of the things we just talked about. Um, so first of all, thank you for taking all this time. And I, I appreciate your handling my, uh, my, uh, uh, blowout of internet connection. And I apologize. How about uh, some promotion time to time to do that. I know the book comes out very shortly. We'll try to get this episode up uh, very soon after this recording. Um, uh, I'm sure you guys are just champing at the bit to, um, to finally have something, a real product to actually have uh, and get in people's hands. How are you going to promote it? Yeah. Our book comes out November 2nd, um, Tuesday, November 2nd, we have, events planned. We have two in-person events happening in Massachusetts next week. One is in Boston at Brookline Booksmith and one is um, in Central Mass at Silver Unicorn Books. And then we also have some virtual stuff happening, which people can find on our social media as well. So I think that's the main way we're going to be promoting it. Yeah. Yeah. Look for us on, on, on Twitter, I think is probably the best uh, way, right, Brittany? Yeah, I have an Instagram, which people are welcome to follow if they'd rather follow that medium. Yeah, so I've I've got those, uh, and I'll make sure that I put those uh, out uh, uh, in our various forms. So in the in the show notes, in the uh, the, the pre roll and the post roll of the uh, setting up the episode, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, this has been fantastic. I again, I've been eagerly awaiting uh, this conversation as well as the publishing of this book. And again, it's uh, it's in some respects, this is kind of why we do. Uh, this show because we we discover things uh, uh, that uh, uh, not only existed but uh, need to be uh, unearthed, remembered, and um, and brought into the spotlight. And and I kudos for finding this story because I think it's 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 not only wonderful uh, but it's uh, it's enlightening and it's um, uh, it's just it's to me it's just endlessly fascinating. And the fact that uh, you're able to uh, frankly, create, I think, the first book around this is 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 maybe the beginnings of of more to come. I, I always I always think that, uh, you know, when we talk about these leagues and teams and stuff, that um, there's actually a ton more that's still out there. It's sitting in someone's attic or basement or whatever, uh, old, you know, footage or uh, stuff. And, and I, I, I'd like to think that maybe that's going to happen uh, with the publishing of this book. And maybe the 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 movies that you're refer we referenced earlier too, someday. We we hope so. We we hope so. We hope that more will come out, and we're just we're kind of opening the door, and and more people will come forward and and share more about this league in that time period. Yeah, I mean, a book like this, if we say there were twelve teams, and you know, it spanned fourteen, fifteen years. We had to stop researching somewhere or it would have been a very, very large book. And so we very much recognize that this is only part of the story. And we are so excited to see what we learn as a result of writing this book. We even have new stuff we've learned since we finished the book. Um, 
So this is just the beginning. And I feel really grateful that this feels like a once in a lifetime kind of project that we got to do. And I'm so grateful that we got to do it. All right, all right, all right. Let's see now. The name of the book is Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Uh, It is published by Bold Type Books. And according to Amazon, it is the number one new release in the sports history category. That's a that's a large category. It's not like the, you know, left handed uh, uh, sawmill uh, uh, union uh, uh, workers of America. Uh, This is uh, a substantial book. There's been a lot of great publicity uh, for it. We are more than uh, happy uh, to uh, add to that uh, that publicity. And I must tell you, as having read the book uh, a number of months ago, you will enjoy it. This is a uh, well-written yarn about uh, a fascinating league and time that um, truly this uh, show was uh, created for, to unearth, uh, delve into, uh, and uh, learn more about. And again, Hail Mary is uh, uh, the proverbial wonderful gift. And um, I highly encourage uh, everybody listening to get uh, a copy uh, or more. Uh, we, of course, love it when you go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Search up this episode with uh, with Brittany and Lindsay, uh, episode number 238. My goodness. Um, and uh, you'll see a convenient link to the book on Amazon. Uh, from our website. We get a couple of shekels of uh, referral love. We appreciate that. Uh, And you can get it in hardcover or uh, in Kindle form, probably the quickest way you can humanly get them uh, uh, via that uh, that method. Uh, Let's see. You can follow uh, Brittany DeLacreta at Brittany DLC. I'll spell it for you. It's B-R-I-T-N-I. D as in David, L-C as in Charlie. At Brittany DLC. You can follow Lindsay Darkangelo at darkangel21. That's D as in David, A-R-C, Angel, A-N-G-E-L, and the number 21, at darkangel21. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Hey, why don't you do that too? We're at Good Seats Still. Uh, our other social media uh, places uh, to find us. Uh, on Instagram, you can find us at Good Seats Still Available. And on uh, the Facebook thing for as long as we do it. We keep threatening to to stop doing it, and I think we might be just this close. It might be a New Year's resolution. But until then, you can find us at Good Seats Still Available as well somewhere there on that monstrosity uh, that is uh, supposedly Facebook. Uh, What else? Um, Our website, again, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's where all of our episodes are, both past, present, and, of course, in the future. Uh, You can share them, download them, do do what you like. Uh, If you've just missed a few... Um, the best way, of course, is to subscribe to our feeds, for God's sakes, wherever those might be. doesn't really matter. We're just about on just about every platform known to, to women or mankind. Um, what else? On our website, you will find a link. Just hit search around for it. You'll find it. Uh, for our email uh, weekly newsletter, that's where we sort of give you a little tip into what we're going to be talking about this coming week. Uh, a little bit ahead of the, uh, the hoi polloi. Uh, so just give us your name. And your email address, we're not going to share it with anybody. It's just us. And uh, boom, you're uh, in the uh, in the elite. And uh, away you will be uh, put into our mailing list so that uh, you will not miss a thing uh, ahead of time in advance. Uh, what else? Jerry Payne, 
congratulations to your Atlanta Braves. We uh, talked about them a little last week, uh, kind of tipping the, uh, the the cap in their general direction and hopefully uh, wishing them a little bit of luck with their uh, 1990s TBS theme song. And I think it worked. Uh, so uh, to the extent that Jerry is an Atlanta Braves fan, we uh, hope he is uh, sobered up from his celebrations. And uh, I, I suspect he has because we've gotten this episode out again this week. So thanks for, uh, you know, not partying too long, Jerry. And uh, don't uh, don't let it go to your head because uh, the new season uh, is just around the corner. Uh, I think that's kind of it. I appreciate your listening uh, as always. And until next week, uh, we wish you a happy and healthy week ahead. Uh, stay safe and sane and uh, take care. Bye bye.